Well, good morning. Welcome uh, to the Parkway Church, where our mics sometimes work and sometimes do not. Glad that you are with us uh, this morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that uh, you could be here. As, uh, as Dave just read, we will be in Romans 15, verses 7 through 13. And so as you, tell, uh, as you turned there, I just wanted to confirm what some of you were suspecting as Tim was playing worship and you thought, there seems to be a little bit more definition in his muscles. Yes, Tim has been working out, and, uh, and so he is looking uh, awfully svelte and swole and all of those kinds of things. And, uh, and so, uh, in fact, there have been, uh, for uh, the past few weeks, uh, Tim and Carl and Gaba, who's one of our deacons, and I are all working out together on, uh, on Mondays. And uh, so we all work out at the same gym because it's uh, $10 a month. And, uh, and so we work out uh, together on Mondays. And so what I tend to do is I tend to uh, try to get there a little early and spend about 10 minutes warming up, doing a little cardio. And then we will all work out together, lift weights. Uh, and then I will go and I'll do cardio uh, on the back end as, uh, as well. And so at uh, our particular gym, they have something called the FitFlix Theater. FitFlix Theater. And so that, what that is is basically this large room. And in that room, they have treadmills, they have ellipticals, they have maybe some stationary bikes and, uh, and just other cardio equipment. And, uh, and it's this room that they just keep the lights completely turned uh, down. And uh, it has a screen and they project a movie on that. And typically, they will project something that's like high testosterone, high adrenaline sort of thing. And so they'll show like the Jason Bourne movies or something by Marvel or something. I kid you not, though, the other day I was in there and uh, Still Magnolias came on. I just started crying for no reason. I had to like jog extra fast because I'm like, my estrogen is literally just rising as I'm uh, in here. And, uh, and so uh, the other day I was, uh, I was in there and, uh, and I was doing my little warm-up, and, uh, and I caught the first part, just 10 minutes or so, of one of the Fast and Furious movies. Now, I've never seen any of the Fast and Furious movies, but uh, I feel like I've probably seen all of them because I will catch them in the Fit Flicks Theater, and uh, I'll just get like a little minute at a time. I'll get 10 minutes here and 15 minutes there, whatever it might be, and I never know which one I'm watching although it doesn't really matter. They're all kind of the exact same. I don't know that the plot is a big part of a, uh, a movie whose whole premise is like they're the, these good-natured street racers who also happen to specialize in high-end heists and espionage and that kind of stuff. But, uh, but anyway, I was watching uh, as I did my kind of uh, initial cardio before we went and lift weights. I was watching it, and, uh, and I saw this scene where uh, you have uh, The Rock and Vin Diesel, uh, and they are just fighting each other. I mean, they are throwing each other through walls and all that kind of stuff. That sounds uh, really exciting. If I said that it's Dwayne Johnson and Mark Sinclair who are fighting each other, that doesn't sound as, uh, as crazy, but that's their real names. And so uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Mark the Vin Diesel Sinclair are, uh, are fighting, and, uh, and then I had to leave. I don't know why they were fighting, anything like that. Uh, go and work out, and I come back, and, uh, and I'm uh, doing some cardio in there, and I find all of a sudden that they're like on the same team, and they're like friends now. And I have no idea what happened uh, in the meantime to actually make them friends, but this reminds me kind of of our passage this morning. You find there are these uh, historic enemies uh, within, uh, within kind of the, the separations of people, and, uh, and all of a sudden they're being reconciled in this one body together. 
Well, I don't know because I've not seen any of the, the Fast and the Furious movies uh, in its entirety. I don't know why Vin Diesel and The Rock hated each other. I don't know why they were fighting each other. But we know historically that Jews and Gentiles despised each other. And we know the historical reasons for that. If you are a first century Jew, you look upon Gentiles and you remember the fact that Gentiles had massacred your people. That Gentiles had subjugated and oppressed your people. That Gentiles had desecrated your law. They have defiled your temple. They have blasphemed your God. And yet Paul is writing in the midst of this and speaking of this reconciliation. So for, in order for us to really grasp the, uh, the sobriety, the gravity, the seriousness of what Paul is talking about, uh, we need to understand that particular context. You see, whenever Paul is talking about reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles in the early church, don't just think the way that you and your neighbor sometimes bicker. Don't think the way that, uh, you know, like Aggies right now are upset because Texas Tech is in the final four, right? Aggies and Texas, uh, the, 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 the Red Raiders, they don't like each other, or Aggies and Longhorns, or basically Aggies and anybody else. I'm an Aggie, so I can say that. Um, don't think of that. If you want kind of a more contemporary illustration so you can really grasp how just profound this level of reconciliation that Paul's going to be talking about in our passage this morning is, then think of this sort of letter being written in the context of 1940s Germany. And Paul would be addressing Jews and Nazis. That's the kind of division that exists. Or think of uh, Paul writing this letter to 1860s America and writing it to blacks and whites. That's the kind of division, that's the kind of enmity, the kind of hatred, the kind of hostility that exists between these two historical groups. And so if we can think of this passage through this lens, that will then help us to understand just how pervasive, how powerful, how profound the gospel can be in bringing about reconciliation and hope, which is what this text is all about. So let's pray, and then we will uh, dive in to the uh, text together. I want to ask that you would just uh, begin by praying for yourself, that the Lord would give you uh, an undivided heart and mind. And then would you pray that for those that are around you, for friends, for family, for strangers, that the Lord would give us a collective passion for His Word. And then would you pray for me? So Father, we ask this morning that You would help us, that we would uh, that You would open our eyes that we might behold the glories of Your Word and see Your glory, the glory of, uh, of Your Son that's manifest to us to reconcile us in one body that we might have hope. We pray these things because You're a good Father who gives good gifts, so we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at verse 7 of Romans 15. We'll begin there. Again, Romans 15, 7 which says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We addressed this a little bit last week. That particular uh, verse might, in your particular translation, uh, might look like it belongs with verses 1 through 6. Other translations might have it uh, listed here with this paragraph. Uh, it can fit in either context. It can fit with last week's sermon. It can fit with this week's sermon because it's kind of a transitional uh, sort of text. We have chosen the latter. We've chosen to put it with this week because that's how most commentaries split uh, the passage. But the passage is going to give us a command. It's going to give us an example. And it's going to give us a reason. 
the command that Paul is going to start with is this command to welcome one another. That's the command, to welcome one another. The example that he gives us is Christ. Talked a little bit about that last week. And then the reason is the glory of God. The command is to welcome one another. The example is Christ. And the reason is the glory of God. So let's start with this command. Paul says to welcome one another. This could also be translated as to receive one another or to accept one another. The, the Greek can uh, kind of carry all of those different uh, nuances. This is just one of the nearly 60 examples in Scripture of the way that we are to treat one another within the body and bride of Christ. Paul will say to love one another, to encourage, to serve, to honor, to instruct. I'm going to stop doing this with my hand because I'm going to run out of fingers. To greet, to accept, to bear with, to be compassionate to, to speak truth to, to submit to, to forgive, to admonish, to exhort, to confess your sins to, and so forth. Again, nearly 60 different commands in the New Testament for how we are to treat each other within the body of Christ. This means that you cannot be faithful to Scripture apart from community. And I don't just mean, and Paul doesn't just mean, your own biological family. If that's all he meant, he would have no sort of recommendations, no counsel, no prescription for for the way that Jews and Gentiles are to relate to each other. If your community can simply consist of your biological family, then you don't need Gentiles if you're a Jew. You don't need Jews if you're a Gentile. You're self-contained. But he's calling us to this level of community that extends beyond your biological family, beyond those who are just like you, who look like you, who have kids that are roughly the same age, who have the same interests, or whatever it uh, it might be. You can't welcome one another without another to welcome. We need each other. By the way, the word for one another in Greek is, uh, it sounds really similar to the English phrase all alone, which is really ironic because you can't do any of these things when you are all alone. In fact, we were created to be in community. Bear in mind how the book uh, of Genesis begins, the very beginning of the Bible, how it uh, begins. Uh, God is listing off things that are good and good and good and good and good and indeed very good. That's the entirety of Genesis chapter 1. The first time we find that something is not good, it's in Genesis 2. And what's that one thing that's not good? It is not good for man to be alone, God says. We were created for community. So we have this command to welcome each other, which will kind of conclude Paul's admonitions that we've seen throughout Romans 14 for the weak and the strong. And then kind of he transitions to Jews and Gentiles, which is the, this sort of motif or theme that permeates the book of Romans. We've seen that all over the place. So why does he do this? Why does he move from talking about weak and strong in chapter 14 and the beginning of chapter 15? in regards to what are called adiaphora issues, these morally neutral issues that are neither commanded nor restricted by Scripture? Why does he move from talking about the division between strong and weak to talking about Jew versus Gentile? And I think there's two different reasons uh, that he does so. The first one is contextually, it would seem as though most of the weaker Christians that Paul is addressing in the book of Romans would have been Jewish Christians in the context of the first century. The reason for this is because they had this historical adherence 
to the Mosaic law. And as a result of that, they would have had a weaker conscience. That's the language of uh, Romans 14. They would have a, a weaker conscience when it comes to things that are adiaphora, when it comes to things like eating meat, when it comes to things like drinking wine, when it comes to uh, things like should you celebrate the Sabbath or not or celebrate other uh, Old Testament festivals and, uh, and feasts. If you had thought for your entire life, let's imagine that for 40 years of your life as a Jew, you had been told that bacon is evil and then all of a sudden you're reborn into this new covenant understanding and all of a sudden you're told you can eat bacon. Well, it's going to take a period of time for your heart to catch up uh, to your, uh, your theology. It's going to take some time to kind of reorient your heart and your mind around the, uh, the implications of what Christ has accomplished uh, for you. So that's the first reason that he transitions from strong and weak to Jew and Gentile is because strong and weak kind of corresponds in the first century to Jew and Gentile. Jews in general would have been a little bit weaker when it comes to most of these issues. Gentiles would have been a little bit stronger. They didn't have this sort of residue or baggage of the Mosaic Law and its uh, sort of strong divisions between what is clean and what is unclean. The second reason that he does this is because this transition from strong and weak to Jew and Gentile is going to serve as what's called an a fortiori argument. That's a, that's a fancy uh, term, uh, but it just means that it's when you use a greater example to prove a lesser example. For instance, we'll talk about Tim since he's been working out, all right? So if Tim can run three miles, then surely he can run one mile, right? It doesn't go the other way. Just because you can run one mile, that doesn't mean you can run three miles. But if you can run three miles, then logically we can conclude that you can run one mile. If you can do the stronger thing, if you can do the harder thing, then you can certainly do the easier thing. And so if Jews can welcome Gentiles, if Gentiles can welcome Jews in light of what we already talked about with this historic enmity, this historic hostility that exists between them, if this thing can happen, this harder thing, how much easier should it be for us who are strong and weak of any ethnicity to be able to reconcile with each other, to be able to welcome each other, to be able to serve each other, to love each other, and, uh, and so forth. So to, to apply this today, if Jews and Gentiles can live in harmony, how much more should those of us with lighter skin be able to welcome and love and accept and receive those of us with darker skin? If Jews and Gentiles can be reconciled, how much more should men and women be able to be reconciled? How much more should rich and poor or educated and uneducated or young and old and on and on we could go with all the different distinctions that the world would say we have to keep and yet Paul would say have been torn down in Christ. The Bible doesn't just say that we are to tolerate one another, but to welcome one another, to receive, to accept one another, which doesn't just mean that we shake each other's hand. Whenever it says welcome each other, that doesn't mean you just stick out your hand and you say welcome and you shake their hand and you go on. You don't know their name. You don't know their story. You don't know their heart, anything like that. Paul's talking about this interweaving together of lives, of hearts, of minds, having a common purpose, a common goal. Not, again, not just those who look like you or talk like you or have kids roughly the same age or meet some other sort of characteristic. The only characteristic that matters in this context of the church 
is has Christ welcomed this person? Has Christ loved them and gave himself for them? If so, we are to welcome them. And the reason that we should welcome one another according to this passage is simple. The glory of God. Don't miss this. Even as Paul is talking about reconciliation within the church, the end goal is not reconciliation in and of itself. The end goal is the glory of God. The end goal isn't reconciliation, reconciliation between Jew and Gentile or man and woman or slave and free, but the glory, the renown, the splendor of God that His glory and worth might be manifest in our reconciliation. That's what we'll see in our passage this morning. That God's glory would be manifest in our mutual love for each other, our acceptance of each other. You see, when we truly welcome, when we truly receive, when we truly accept each other in the body of Christ, we are saying, in that moment, we're saying the gospel is better. Better than my preferences, better than my privileges, better than my ethnicity, better than my gender, better than my age or education or socioeconomic status or anything else that the world says that we should divide over. Reconciliation speaks to the supremacy, the sufficiency of Christ as we're willing to lay down those lesser identities for the greater identity, which is brother and sister in the family of God. And that glorifies our good Father. Let's look at verses uh, 8 through the beginning of uh, verse 9, where Paul writes, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So here's the reason, here's the ground for welcoming others. Paul previously said to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And how has Christ welcomed you? By becoming a servant, by laying down His rights, by laying down His privileges, indeed by laying down His life in serving others. We talked about this a little bit last week. That Christ's primary purpose was not to be an example for us. His primary purpose was to be our substitute, our redeemer, our savior. But a secondary purpose is that he also is an example. He is a, something that we are to imitate in his service. So let's look at the reason that the text gives for Christ's service. Why did he become a servant? And it says uh, that he did so to show God's truthfulness. And then Paul says that by showing, he shows God's truthfulness by doing two things. The first one is by confirming the promises given to the patriarchs. And the second one is by showing mercy to the Gentiles. What's interesting is as we'll look at this, we'll see that those are actually interrelated. So by uh, confirming the promises given to the patriarchs and by showing mercy to the to the Gentiles. So let's work through this passage a little bit uh, at a time. First, I want you to just notice the interplay in this text between glory and truth. Notice the goal is that we might glorify God and notice what is being manifest, what is being upheld, what is being proclaimed or demonstrated is the truthfulness of God. Those of you who have been with us from the very beginning uh, of the book of Romans might recall that the book begins by talking about truth and glory. In fact, Romans chapter 1 begins by talking about the, the fundamental sin, the principal sin of mankind consists of us doing two things. One, we suppress the truth about God. And the second one is that we fail to glorify Him. And so we see here this resolution, that the gospel is this resolution between us failing to uphold the truthfulness and the glory 
of God. The gospel is the means by which the truth and glory of God are upheld and manifest to the world. Second, I want to ask this question. What does it mean when Paul says that Christ became a servant to the circumcised? Why does he say that in particular? Well, the circumcised is a way uh, of referring to those who are physically or ethnically Jewish. And in his earthly ministry, we see there is this very clear priority of time that Jesus spends ministering among the Jews. Consider a couple of passages from Matthew. Matthew 10, 5 through 6. Uh, Jesus sends the, uh, the 12 disciples out and he instructs them and says, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Perhaps even more dramatically, in Matthew 15, 24, Jesus answers this woman who asks him for help. He answers, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, you might wrongly conclude from these passages that Christ didn't care about Gentiles, that, uh, that Christ didn't love Gentiles, that he was racist, that he was ethnocentric or something like that. But if we keep reading, we see that's not the case uh, at all. In fact, the opposite is true. And so in order to, to really understand what he's saying here, we need to consider these two interrela- uh, interrelated reasons that Paul says that Christ became a servant. The first one that we talked about is that he became a servant to the circumcised in order to confirm the promises given to the Jewish patriarchs, the Jewish fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The second reason is to, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. In other words, to extend the promises that are given to the patriarchs, to extend those promises beyond the borders of Israel to the Gentiles as well. So let me give you an illustration that will help us as we talk about uh, why this is so uh, significant. So some of you know that my lovely wife, Casey, is almost seven months pregnant with our, uh, with our first son. Now imagine that I have some sort of opportunity to save Casey's life. Let's say that for whatever reason, she just is a daredevil or something, and so she is uh, free climbing like we talked about last time I preached. And, uh, and so she's about to fall, which I think uh, free climbing is generally not a good idea, especially when you're seven months pregnant. But for whatever reason, she is doing that, and I reach out and I grab her. Now, in that moment, I might not be thinking of my unborn son, but by saving my wife's life, I am also, therefore, saving my son's life. Well, that's what Christ does in his ministry to the Jews. The promises of the patriarchs, you might think of it as the promises that were given to the patriarchs were sort of pregnant with this hope for Gentiles. So by fulfilling these promises that are given specifically to Israel, Christ is also going to fulfill this hope to the Gentiles because the promises to Israel are pregnant with glimmers of hope for Gentiles as well. Let me show you that uh, from uh, the text itself. This is what's fascinating about this passage, that Paul's saying that by extending the promises to the Gentiles, God actually fulfills, He confirms the promises given to the Jews. The original promises to Israel themselves always had this embedded sliver of hope for the Gentiles. The very first time that we meet the father of Jews, Abram, before his name is changed to Abraham, which by the way, what does Abraham mean? The father of many nations, right? So if you think that the entire Old Testament is just about Israel, you're missing the very fact that his name is changed from Abram to Abraham, the father of many nations, a multitude of nations. When we very first meet him, 
That didn't sound right. When we first meet him in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Listen to this next phrase. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Can God fulfill this promise given to Israel without also blessing Gentiles? No, he cannot. Embedded in this promise that's given to the Jewish patriarchs is this hope of the world, hope for Gentiles. Or look in uh, chapter 22, 17 through 18. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring, listen to this, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Again, can God fulfill this promise given to Abraham without blessing the Gentiles? No. The promises that he gives to the patriarchs themselves are pregnant with hope for Gentiles. Or a promise that's given to Abraham's son Isaac in, in Genesis 26. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, Israel was never the end, never the goal. It was the means by which God would bring about the blessing of the entire world, Jew and Gentile, Israel and the nation. So the promises were never about or never to one particular nationality or one particular, uh, one particular people, but rather to a particular person. We've mentioned this passage a number of times before, that the passages, the promises that are given are given not just to the nation of Israel, in other words, to every descendant from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but rather to one particular descendant, Galatians 3.16, to Jesus. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Notice it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ so the promises are not made to a multitude of offspring. The promises that God makes to the patriarchs are to one particular offspring, one particular seed, one particular descendant of Abraham, that is Jesus Christ. So follow the logic here because this, a thousand exegetical mistakes can be avoided if you understand what Paul is saying. The promises that Yahweh the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promises that the triune Lord God makes to Abraham and Israel are not ultimately made to the nation of Israel as a whole, but rather to the true and better Israelite, Jesus. He is the heir. He is the fulfillment. He is the point. Whereas the world was once divided between Jew and Gentile, now the world is divided between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ that He is the dividing line for humanity. So Christ serving the circumcised doesn't restrict God's blessing to the Gentiles. In fact, it's the very means by which those blessings are extended and God reconciles the world, Jew and Gentile, which is itself the promise that is made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so this demonstrates the truthfulness or the faithfulness to God's promises. This will be really important as we get to hope uh, in later verses. The reason that we can hope in God is because He is faithful. 
He's always faithful. He always keeps his promises. This is an illustration of that. There's nothing else in your life that is that certain. One of my favorite uh, books, obviously outside the Bible, favorite books of all time is uh, Lonesome Dove. Anyone ever read Lonesome Dove or maybe seen the miniseries or something like that? There's this scene where this character named uh, Gus McRae, Augustus McRae, he says that this other character whose name is Jake Spoon, he said he's far too leaky a vessel to put much hope in. And biblically, that's the case with everything that's not God. Everything else in your life is far too leaky a vessel for you to put much hope in. Whether it's your spouse or your kids or your parents or your health or your job or your savings account or the government or politics or the military or your ethnicity or your education or even churches and church leaders, everything will fail you. We will fail you. Parkway will fail you. I personally will fail you. Hopefully not intentionally, but at some point I will because I'm fallible. God is not. God is faithful. We see His faithfulness to His promises. And the fact that God is faithful to His promises, the promises that He made to the patriarchs, this therefore is not just some sort of interesting uh, sort of tidbit of biblical trivia that you can impress your friends with. This is the foundation upon which we build our lives. If God's Word is not faithful, then we have nothing in which we can place our ultimate hope. Our life shifts. So it's not some uh, tidbit of biblical trivia. It's profoundly practical for you and me because our hope depends on it. If God cannot be trusted to fulfill some promises, like the promises that He made to the patriarchs, that he can't really be trusted to fulfill any promises, which means he can't be trusted to fulfill promises that he makes for eternal life, promises that he makes for resurrection, promises that he makes for eternal joy, promises that he makes for peace, promises that he makes for harmony, promises that he makes for love, and on and on we could go. The faithfulness of God is thus the foundation upon which our hope is built. If he is faithful, if he is truthful, then he can be trusted and we can fully hope in Him, as Paul will uh, show us. So let's keep going. The uh, second half of Romans nine, uh, Romans fifteen nine through ten, as it is written: Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. And again, it is said: Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. So you see here a quotation of Second Samuel twenty two fifty. By the way, that's also cited in Psalm eighteen forty nine. And then a citation, the second one there is Deuteronomy 32, uh, 43. This is going to begin, so these are two different citations. Uh, these are the first two of four different citations that show this glimmer of hope that's embedded even in the Old Testament. In addition to the passages that I quoted earlier, where you see this promise uh, that God would reconcile all nations or God would be blessing all nations through uh, the patriarchs, you have... These passages that show this sort of embedded hope for Gentiles throughout the Old Testament. And interestingly enough, these four citations that we'll see Paul rattle off here come from four different genres of Old Testament literature. Paul's going to cite one passage, uh, this passage here in Deuteronomy, one passage from the uh, Torah, the Old Testament law. He's going to cite one passage from the prophets. He's going to cite one passage from wisdom literature. And then he's going to cite one passage from historical literature. Now, this is one of those subtle evidences that if you're not uh, paying close attention, sort of blink and you'll miss it sort of idea. This is one of these subtle evidences for the canon of Scripture. 
that the Old Testament was generally divided into either three or four different sections. Three sections, uh, it would generally be seen as the law, the prophets, and the writings. Four sections, you could say the law, uh, the prophets, the historical writings, and wisdom literature. Uh, but either of those are kind of Jewish ways of referring to the entirety of, uh, of the Bible. If you read the New Testament, you won't see a list of every book in the Old Testament. Instead, what you'll see is this threefold division or a full four, fourfold division. It's kind of like uh, if I uh, am talking and I say, from Genesis to Revelation. I haven't just mentioned all 66 books of the Bible, but you know in that moment I'm talking about every book that kind of exists in between. Or if I say something like, from sea to shining sea. I haven't listed off all 50 states, but I mean by that, it's a figure of speech by which I mean all the 50 states. Even states like Oklahoma or Arkansas or lesser states like, uh, like that. That's what, uh, that's what Paul's doing here. By quoting from these p- four sections, Paul is, uh, is basically showing the ubiquity of this hope, how universally this applies. It's everywhere. In other words, you can't miss it. The Old Testament is kind of like this, old, this where, Where's Waldo book, that there's reference to this hope of Gentiles on every page if you just look hard enough in the right places. So as we work through these citations, I want you to notice a few things. I want you to notice the verbs that Paul is going to use. Notice the verbs that he uses here as he quotes. He uses the verb praise, to sing, to rejoice, to hope. As we mentioned before, the glory of God is the end. It's the point. In worship, which is kind of the theme of all of these citations, worship is this appropriate response to the glory of God. Which is why uh, we kind of have the, uh, our, our uh, services uh, laid out as they are. There is this initial sort of introduction of singing, then there's the proclamation of the Word, and then we close in singing again because worship is kind of the overflow of, uh, of the Word as it moves from our head into our heart. So think about that in light of the context of division between Jew and, uh, and Gentile. I might have told this story before, I'm not sure. But, uh, but uh, one of my first trips out of the country, I went to Romania. This was way back in, uh, in 2004. And, uh, and, uh, and so we flew all the way, I think it was to uh, Paris, uh, and then changed planes and then flew into Timisoara, uh, Romania. And then we had to drive something like two hours to get to uh, this little church. And so it was like we got there just as church was beginning. We didn't actually get to change clothes. We didn't get to shower. We didn't get to brush our teeth. We didn't get to, uh, you know, put our bags down. Literally, we walk into the church carrying our suitcases, and we sit down, and they start a, sermon, uh, a service there. And uh, in, in Romania, services last a little bit longer. Uh, if you're here in theological equipping, and uh, Carl mentioned a passage where it talks about Paul preaching till midnight, that's kind of the experience there. They just keep going and keep going. The problem is it's all in Romanian. My Romanian's not very good. We have a Romanian citizen uh, who's with us today. She probably would have understood the entire service. I did not. I didn't understand anything, except at one point the preacher said the word Nicodemus. So I thought, I guess we're in John 3. And I just turned there and uh, read that story for myself. I wasn't edified at all. I had a buddy on that trip uh, who for months had been practicing uh, learning a song in Romanian. And, uh, and so he had uh, done whatever you did back in 2004 to translate something. He had gone to 
Ash Jeeves or Alta Vista or something like that on the internet, and, uh, and he had just basically just translated it online, and he spends all of this time memorizing it, and then he gets this opportunity to go up and, uh, and to sing the song in these people's own native language. And, uh, and so he does it, and it's beautiful, and afterwards, the translator turns to me, and she says, that was lovely. Was that Hebrew? <laughs> Apparently... Something uh, was lost in, uh, in translation. Sometime after that, though, they started, to, uh, they started to lead in worship. And I didn't understand any of the words. Again, I don't speak any Romanian uh, whatsoever. And yet, I could join in. Most of the songs that they sang were these sort of historic hymns of the church. And so in that moment, for the first time in that service, because of the nature of worship, I didn't feel like an American in a Romanian church. I just felt like a Christian in a church. As Romanian and American, our voices raise together in unity, in harmony, singing different lyrics, but the same song. That's what's happening here. Jew and Gentile reconciled together. There's no Jew or Gentile, just the church. Let's look at verse 11 and 12. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. So here we have Paul citing from both Psalm 117 and Isaiah 11. I want to look at uh, the entirety of Psalm 117. This is the shortest chapter in, uh, in the Bible, so we'll put the entire thing up on the screen. Psalm 117, 1 through 2, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. You see here this combination of God's steadfast love. By the way, that uh, Hebrew phrase can also be translated as mercy, which you saw uh, in uh, the beginning of our passage this morning, that, God, that, that the Gentiles would glorify God for His mercy to the Gentiles. So you see here God's steadfast love or mercy and His faithfulness could also be translated as truthfulness. So you have mercy and truthfulness, which is the very thing that Romans 15 is talking about. So the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile is evidence of both God's mercy and His faithfulness. And then he quotes from Isaiah uh, chapter 11, verse 10, and you have this reference to Jesse. Well, who's Jesse? He is the father of King David. So the root of Jesse indicates one who will be in the line, a descendant of David, and thus will rule over Israel as king. But what's unique about Isaiah's prophecy, <coughs> excuse me, I should have coughed the other way, is that this messianic king who rules over Israel in the line of David will also rule over the world. He doesn't just rule over the tribes of Israel. He rules over every nation, tongue, and tribe. That the world will stream to this messianic king in the context of Isaiah 11, that he will rule and reign not just over one nation, but His throne will stretch throughout the entire world. So Jesus is not only the hope of Israel, although He is the hope of Israel, He is the hope of the nations, the world, the Gentiles, the peoples, you and me. And hope is going to provide a bridge between verse 12 and the conclusion of our passage in verse 13, where Paul writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. 
This particular uh, sort of genre, this, uh, the, the way that this passage is laid out, it's called a benediction, which is formed from a Latin phrase, which means good word. It's a good word which is spoken over someone uh, like a, uh, an apostolic blessing, if you will. This is an expression of Paul's sort of pastoral, priestly hope for, uh, for his people, the people to whom he is writing. And these benedictions are fairly common in Scripture. You'd be familiar with some of them. Two of the most famous are the Aaronic uh, blessing or benediction that we find in number six. You're familiar with this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and, lift, and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's a benediction or the benediction that concludes 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In a lot of countries overseas, that's the way they conclude their service. They just speak that blessing to each other. And then that's the conclusion of the service. Paul ends all of his letters with some sort of benediction like this. So follow the logic of Paul's benediction or blessing. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of God of hope in particular, grants faith. That's the reference to believing here. Which then produces joy and peace, which thus abounds or overflows in more hope. And that somehow speaks to reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, and between strong and weak, and between black and white, and between men and women, and rich and poor, and anything else that we want to throw uh, in there. So let me give you an illustration about this. Suppose I happen upon some sort of argument between Zach and Tim. I'm trying to pray. I'm trying to do something uh, pastoral in my office, and yet I can't because they're bickering uh, in, uh, in their shared office, as they typically do. And so uh, they're arguing over whose beard is best or which brand of chip is best or who's fastest or whatever it is that, that uh, those guys uh, like to argue over. Meanwhile, Carl, because he has teenagers, has just completely tuned them out. So Carl's just in there doing his Rubik's Cube. And uh, this, is, this is a weekly occurrence, by the way. Uh, Carl's doing his Rubik's Cube, and those guys are uh, bickering about uh, something. And let's say I walk in, and I need some help with something, all right? I don't know what it is, but I, I walk in, and I need uh, some help with something. So I asked Tim and Zach to stop arguing, stop bickering, and instead to help me to, uh, to do this uh, thing that we are uh, supposed to be doing. And I say that if we do it, if we can work together, if we can get this thing done, I will give you guys a reward. I'll give you a prize. I'll take you to Chuck E. Cheese, right? They just love that, all right? So, what happens? What happens in this moment? Well, this, this hope of mediocre pizza and uh, really dirty premises and an animatronic rat and skee-ball has somehow all of a sudden uh, united them. It's filled them with joy, and it's brought about peace. All of a sudden, they aren't bickering anymore. They're skipping through the halls and giggling and all of those uh, sorts of things. Not only that, but Carl then looks up from his Rubik's Cube and he looks at me and he's amazed at my wisdom, the glory of my wisdom, that I would be able to reconcile Zach and, uh, and Tim and get those guys to stop arguing. Well, take that little silly illustration, that little analogy, and now pull that into the church. Pull that into this passage. When Jews and Gentiles, or when black and white, or when men and women, or when rich or poor, or when educated and uneducated, whatever it might be, when weak and strong 
when they recognize this sort of common hope, this common goal, all of a sudden the pettiness of their disputes, the pettiness of their bickering over meat and wine or any other sort of adiaphora issues that we looked at in chapter 14, they begin to fade away. And the effect of that unity, that harmony, that reconciliation is that we would see and appreciate all the more the glory of God who brings together people of, uh, of every tongue, of every tribe, of every nation. We could end right there, but there's one other underlying aspect of this text that we need to mention before we go to communion. So I want to close uh, with this. We talked a little bit earlier about an a fortiori argument. Someone tell me what an a fortiori argument is. It's arguing from the stronger to the less strong, from the greater to the lesser. And so we talked about that with Jews and Gentiles. If Jews and Gentiles can be reconciled, how much more can our little petty squabbles, whatever they are? But there's an even greater a fortiori argument here in this passage than Jew and Gentiles because we began by saying to welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you. That's the greater image. That's the image that should compel us toward peace and harmony in the body. Jew and Gentile, black and white, man and woman, slave and free, educated and uneducated, old and young, those divisions pale in comparison to the divide that exists between a holy and righteous God and unrighteous men and women. But God, being rich in mercy, has reconciled us to Himself, has accepted us, has welcomed us, has received us. He's reconciled us to Himself and to each other for our good and for His glory. So let's pray as the men come forward. We prepare ourselves for communion. Father, I thank You for Your Word this morning. I thank You for that picture, the picture of Jew and Gentile being reconciled and how that then overflows to our understanding of strong and weak and men and women and ethnicity and education and age and any other sort of arbitrary division or distinction that we want to make in the church. Lord, I pray that those walls would fall here in Parkway, Lord, that You would unify us, that there might be greater harmony, that we wouldn't merely look at that uh, reconciliation between Jew and Gentile as our sort of prompting and controlling picture, but instead we would look at the reconciliation between You and Your people, that though we were evil and wicked and hated You, You have given us Your Son to reconcile us. May that be the image that compels us to reconcile with each other. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.